0: Hello, thank you for visiting the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, you can check out our audio archive every week at vineyardcampbellsville.org or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Everybody good? Hope it rains today. We need the rain. (laughs) Don't we though, right? I thought it'd be a good idea this year to put in a flower garden for Mother's Day, which we did uh, with the help of all of my children And uh, it's been great, but then I keep saying to myself, when the ground dries out, I'll weed the flower garden. And now the flowers and the tares of wheat uh, are are competing for who's tallest just because of this last week. Um, There we go. So um, I want to tell you a story, and I want you to use your imagination. Will you do that? Will you use your imagination with me? I want to tell you a story. you know, it wasn't in, in the terms of human history. Human, This is human history. In terms of human history, it wasn't too long ago that we lived in a world uh, where there was no electricity. We lived in a world where the uh, speed at which people could travel was not any faster uh, than their ability to walk or to ride a, a horse or a mule or something like that. And where young people had responsibilities uh, that we would think are crazy today. Uh, you know, a 13 or 14 year old may help take care of the livestock, and if your livestock grazed like in the hills of eastern Tennessee or eastern Kentucky, you know you might have to go after you know the you know the the, the livestock quite a distance to be able to bring them back in. And you know sometimes your kids would be gone for you know two or three hours or all day. And, you know, you'd only begin to think about, oh, yeah, he's missing, you know, because it's sundown, and that's it. And um, I I want you to use your imagination about a young guy, let's make him 12, 13, or 14 years old. And he's on one of those hillsides. Hi, Sandy. Come in. Have a seat. (laughs) So he's on one of those hillsides, and... um, Uh, You know, he's out taking care of the family business, and the family business not long ago uh, in places like eastern Kentucky and eastern Tennessee and, you know, lots of places all around the world uh, would have been, uh, you know, farming and taking care of of critters. And um, the pattern of weather that we've had over the past 10 or 12 days with these afternoon thunderstorms, Some of them, you know, really flooding. Anybody got, like, remember about a week ago getting awakened at 5 o'clock in the morning by, like, just quite the light and flash and thunder show? Uh, You know, you can imagine a young boy being out on a hillside, uh, and then he looks across, you know, one hillside, looks across the valley that, you know, kind of runs from the north to the south, and he sees the storm clouds moving in. And, you know, he realizes, oh, I'm going to have to wait out, you know, maybe a thunderstorm. And and so he finds a safe place in the rock, um, not under a tree, children, not under a tree. He finds a safe place in the rocks, and uh, he just watches the clouds build. He watches uh, the skies get dark and the clouds going from, you know, just kind of a dirty white to a deep dark gray and then he begins to hear the thunder and, and the hills kind of catch the thunder. Are you working on this in your own mind? The hills begin to catch the thunder and you know, reverberate it back. And then he starts to see the lightning and he notices the, you know, that between the flash of the lightning and the sound of the thunder that there's some sort of a gap. And um, uh, because the kid grows up in a family that honors God, he begins to muse not only on the greatness of nature, but on the greatness of God that's being revealed in a storm like that. So are, are you working with me? You working with me, young boy? And he's, he's starting to do that. And, um, and I don't know about you, but there may have been times in uh, your life, certainly there have been times in my life, where I just I have a moment and that moment gets impressed upon me and it becomes a part of who I am. And so I have memories from age 12, 13, or 14, not just of the everyday events that happened, but sometimes like where God became more real. Uh, I have memories of events where, where things just got impressed upon me. And, and there's no particular reason except it meant something to me. So I want you to imagine this young boy on this hillside and he's watching the storm roll in. And he's a musician and he's a writer and he's a poet. And so when he gets back home, he begins to reflect on what it was that he experienced. And he writes a poem that sounds something like this because he, because he begins to say, you know, this thunderstorm is a lot like the voice of God. At least in his imagination, this thunderstorm is like what God would sound like. And so he writes this poem later in his life. He writes, the voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks cedar trees in two. Yes, the Lord breaks the pieces of cedars even from Lebanon. And he makes Lebanon skip like a calf. He makes the hills like a young wild ox The voice of the Lord hews out fires of flame. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness, the holy wilderness. The voice of the Lord makes deers to calve on the spot. The voice of the Lord strips the forests bare, and in his temple, everything says glory. So, That's a nice poem, isn't it? (laughs) It's a pretty good poem. Well, it turns out he's not from East Tennessee or Eastern (laughs) Kentucky. Uh, But you understand that the world of a shepherd boy named David who grows up to become the king of Israel, the world of David was not so different from the world that we experienced just 100 years ago you realize that people who grew up in the late 19th century, in the 1880, 1850, 1880, that sort of thing, that people had more in common with the people of the Bible than we do because of the massive changes that we've experienced in the last 150 years. And I want you to imagine that David, a young boy going after his father's livestock, And he's caught in a thunderstorm, and it makes this deep impression on him. And through a series of incredibly wild and unpredictable events, the same guy that's out on a hillside as a teenager looking to round up dad's livestock ends up becoming the king of Israel and the king of God's chosen people. And we don't know how old David was when he wrote that poem. But I like to imagine that he experienced the voice of God in a thunderstorm as a young man. And then at some point in his life, he reinterpreted it as, hey, you know what? That's the voice of God. And the amazing thing is not only was he a poet, not only was he a songwriter, not only did that impression of the young shepherd boy become something that was carried forward to the king of Israel But when he wrote it down, it became part of the scripture that we receive today. Because I just read to you out of Psalm 29, Psalm 29 verses 3 through 9. So, can you, does your view of scripture allow for the possibility that somebody's life experiences could be infused with meaning by the Holy Spirit? And that they put their perspective, their life experience, their interpretive grid on that. And that the Holy Spirit looks at it and goes, hey, that's pretty good. The Holy Spirit says, I think I'll save that one. Does your view of the inspiration of scripture include the dynamic interplay between the Holy Spirit and man or woman? Or do we think that the Bible was just dictated by people who were doing, what do they call that, trance writing? I don't even know what I'm writing. I'm just writing this stuff down, right? And so, next slide. What I want to do is I want to talk today about the Bible. And I want, I hope, to, to open up the possibilities of the scripture Uh, for us, because the Bible is God's gracious gift to followers of Jesus. And here at the Vineyard, and Andrew mentioned the Vineyard Global Conference, the Vineyard as a movement has been around for about 35 years, 60 plus countries, there's 24, 2,500 churches around the world. One of the foundations of the Vineyard is that we believe that the Bible is God's gift to all of humanity. We believe that the Bible is a faithful and reliable interpreter of God's heart and God's mind. We believe the Bible. We also embrace uh, some of the aspects of Pentecostalism, the dynamic of the Holy Spirit, and the the interplay of the Holy Spirit just inspiring our minds and hearts right now. Uh, In other words, what we've tried to do is to try to live in the radical middle between the best of evangelicalism. You guys ever hung out with evangelicals? That's a joke. Okay? You guys ever hung out? See, I love hanging out with my Baptist brothers and sisters because they have such deep respect for the scriptures. And even if uh, my Baptist brothers and sisters don't always see things the way I do, we have a common place where we can come and we can gather around. And oddly enough, I don't know why this is crazy, but I've been invited to speak at Baptist churches. And oddly enough, when we open the book together and we see what God's word is to us, I watch men and women go through a transformation because they trust the God who inspired the book that's been preserved for us today. And I'll go this far. It's impossible to be a devoted follower of Jesus without the Bible playing a large part in our life. Okay? I'm all for the dynamic of the Holy Ghost now. I'm all for the dynamic of interpersonal relationships, fidelity, community. Oh, I'm I'm all about that, especially if somebody makes cheesecake. I'm all about those sort of things. But you understand that it is impossible to be a follower of Jesus a disciple, apart from interacting with this precious gift that he's given to us. And so that's what I want to talk about today. Do I have your permission? We'll take a vote. All those in favor of this as our topic, because as we know, Robert's Rules of Order is also in the Bible. Okay, I didn't even, I, I know we have a quorum, but I sure didn't get a majority. All of those in favor that this is our topic today, please signify by raising your hand. Okay, it's been moved and seconded and passed by at least uh, the bare majority that this will be our topic today. Would you, would you pray with me? Would you, would you pray for me? That the, <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, we better pray for that guy. All right, Lord Jesus, I want to thank you, Lord, that in your wisdom and also in your kindness that you have given us this lasting legacy. And we receive the Bible as your love gift to us. And I ask today both for um, wisdom and insight and courage to say what I should. I ask, Lord, for wisdom and insight and for gifts of faith to be released on the part of those who listen. And I ask that you would open our eyes, that we would discover amazing things from your law. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay. You ready to go to work? All right. First of all, I hate the phrase the Bible says. Okay. So we're going to make a new rule. No more. Does anybody say the Bible says? Because I brought two of them here just in case one was defective. I don't hear it saying anything, okay? Also, you know, the Bible's like a library, you know, 66 books, 40 authors, 1,500 years, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's this collection. When's the last time a library ever told you what to do? Okay? Um, Maybe this one's defective. Maybe, no, no. I, I hate the phrase the Bible says. On the other hand, I love the idea that God speaks through the Bible to us. Have you ever been around people, and please, no show of hands on this one. Have you ever been around those people who say, well, the Bible says you're not supposed to do that. And, well, I don't know what that is. Maybe it's go to an R-rated movie. Let's just pick that one. And I say, yeah, really, can you give me chapter and verse on that? Uh, You know, the Bible says you can't do this. The Bible says you can't do that. The Bible says you'd better be sure to do this. And the book's not the boss of me. Is that radical? The book's not the boss of me. The Lord, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the creator of heaven and earth, My creator, my redeemer, and my sustainer is the boss of me. And in his love and care for me, he's given me this faithful revelation of his heart and of his mind. Okay? Now, just if you're worried that I'm going to go off the rails here, if I do my job, I I hopefully will help you to fall more in love with God's gracious gift to us. And just to flash those credentials, you know, like when the cop shows up at the door, I believe that the Ten Commandments are Ten Commandments. They're not suggestions. Okay? I believe that Jesus uh, was born of a virgin. I believe that he lived a perfect, sinless life. He was unjustly accused. He was killed. He was resurrected physically and bodily on the third day. Okay? I believe the testimony of the Scripture. And I believe that the Scripture is true true, true. Okay. So stay with me on this. Okay. But it's not the boss of me. My Lord is the boss of me. And my Lord has given me this wonderful book. So, um, I prefer that God speaks through the Bible as opposed to the Bible says, and right away that feels like a common safe phrase to say, that God speaks through the Bible. But what a concept this is. Do you know that the ancient religions from all around the rest of the world don't have a concept that God speaks through a printed word? They have stories and myths about what the gods did. They have accounts about the history of their great uh, leaders of their faith. But they don't have a concept that God is the living, active God is speaking through the book. Okay? The actions of other gods may be interesting, but the notion that the words of the book were somehow inspired would have been foreign to the ancient world, except for the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the God of Moses began something that was entirely different. The God of Moses began to tell Moses what his own ancestry was like because it's Moses who is credited with writing uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The God of Moses is, is the one who whispers into Moses' ear and says, let me tell you about Abraham. Do you know that Israel was so distantly removed from their own ancestral history that they didn't know the name of God when Moses is the agent of deliverance? Uh, from Egyptian captivity. And they may have known, for example, that they were sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, but they had no idea who these people were, what they did, or what their story was. God whispered into Moses's ear. Moses listened intently, and he wrote it down. And he wrote it down to give shape and life to a community. Right? And God and Moses together created his message of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. When critics of the Bible say, well, you know that the Bible is written by men? Do you know the critics are half right? The Bible was written by men as the Holy Spirit moved on them. mean, you're lucky that there's some distance because I have coffee breath. As the Holy Spirit breathed on them, and just like David, in uh, in my imagination, interpreted his experience of a thunderstorm on a hillside and says, that's got to be just like the, the voice of God. Just like Psalm 29, God, in partnership with men, wrote the Bible. Now, you understand, I believe entirely like the passage that says, I'm watching over my word to perform it. I believe that all scripture is inspired by God, God breathed and is useful for training in righteousness. Do you understand? I believe that it's an accurate and reliable record on which we can build our lives. But you see, when God began to work with Moses, who's credited with being the author of the first five books of the Bible, God was preparing the world for another word of God yet to come. And that word of God was also a man. Do you understand? The word of God was written through the agency of men. And then born of a virgin, boy, I look just like a Pentecostal preacher right now, don't I? Um, Then the word of God that was born of a virgin was man and God. He was the word of God to us. Isn't that right? I think that the revelation of the Old Testament written in concert between man and God was preparing the world for the time when we would meet Jesus, the word of God in a man, or the word of God that was a man. In Jesus, you see, in, in the Old Testament, we find the word of God written by men, but in Jesus, we find the word of God who was a man. The old prepared us for the new. The old prepared us for the new. So, Let's go to the next slide if we can. Um, Jonathan. I, there's some uniqueness about the Bible. And I'm going to shift here to kind of uh, teaching mode for a little bit. If it gets boring, you can leave before I do. But I like to complete my teaching. So I'm going to go for it. The word of God is unique in its unity. It's unique in its preservation. And it's unique uh, in the fact that God is still speaking through it. These are some of the uniquenesses um, of the word of God. Um, the word of God is unique in unity, okay? So I've already said this. It's 66 books. It just There's got to be at least 40 different authors that contributed to it over a period of 1,500 years from when the Bible was first being recorded by Moses to when the canon was closed uh, during the, uh, the uh, first or second century, depending on how you account for time there. Um, and yet, it has a remarkable unity of purpose and voice, so let's use our imagination one more time. Most of us here are Americans. I want you to imagine 10 American authors. Can you do that? You don't have to list them. There won't be a test. But pick who you want. Pick from uh, Janet Oakes to Stephen King to John Updike to, uh, Ray, Hollenbach. to Ray Hollenbach. Yeah. <laughs> Checks in the mail. There we go. Okay, I want you. I want you to imagine just ten American authors, and then you ask them to weigh in on issues like the meaning of life, spirituality, sexuality, government, justice, mercy, care for the poor, uh, uh, righteousness. I. You could assemble ten American writers from within the 20th late 20th and early 21st century you could assemble them and let them collaborate and whatever they come up with wouldn't just speak with 10 separate voices it would prob- those 10 people would produce a book that probably spoke with 20 separate voices and to point that out even further we have nine people who interpret the law of our land a constitution that was written 200 years ago and whether you know whether you like Supreme Court rulings, or whether you don't like it, those nine voices end up writing three or four different opinions. And so they say, by a vote of six to three, we think this ought to be a law, or by a vote of five to four. And then some people say, well, I'm with the majority, but I'm going to write a separate majority opinion. And then other people say, oh, no, I'm a dissenting opinion. And then the guy said, well, if you're going to write a dissenting opinion, I'm going to. We have nine uh, people who have given themselves to the study. These people are way smarter than me or you. Well, me for sure. Um, and and they, they have a difficult time speaking with one voice. And, in fact, they don't. Speak with one voice. And yet the scripture remarkably has a certain unity. It's been contributed to by kings and by poets and shepherds. Sometimes all three of those are one person. By outlaws, by fishermen, by statesmen, by generals, by doctors, by scholars, by tent makers. Can you imagine? People, I mean, the... the, The Bible was cross-cultural before it was cool to be cross-cultural. It's multilingual, in that there's three languages that have contributed to the Bible. It reaches all over the world. It's been translated into nearly every language that you could think of. Um, uh, it, it, It was written depending on whether you count the Sinai Peninsula as part of Africa or whether you count it as part of Asia. It was written on three continents. 40-plus authors, 1,500 years, three languages, three continents, people from all walks of life, and yet it has a unique unity. And I can tell you this as a guy who's been reading the scriptures, not that, you know, I'm all that and a bag of chips, but reading the scriptures since 1969, that it's a remarkable book that is unified and yet still filled with mystery. The the Bible has a unique unity. It also has a unique preservation. This is amazing to me. There's been nothing new added to the Bible, and and nor would I recommend that we do add anything new to the Bible since the end of the first century when the original followers of Jesus all went to be closer with Jesus. Um, And yet, what we hold in our hands, I knew if I was going to talk about the Bible, I had to Get a black leather one. I had to hold it up and shake it at least once. What we hold in our hands, brothers and sisters, what we hold in our hands has been uniquely preserved throughout history. Have you heard people say, well, there's a lot of translations, who knows what's really right, and the Bible's a book from a long time ago, and you know, you've heard questions like that. And yet, in everyday life, we talk about things like, well, Aristotle was the father of this, and Plato gave us, you know, this school of philosophy. Homer, yes, Lord. Um, <laughs> we say that, that Homer gave us, you know, the, 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 uh, um, the heroic epics that have shaped our life, the Iliad and the Odyssey, shaped all of at least Western culture, if not part of Eastern culture. Um, Let's just do a little bit, because I really am in kind of instructional mode. Let's do the next slide, if we could, Jonathan. Okay. Um, Plato wrote in the 10th century before Christ. The, before, oh, I'm sorry, that should say, 10th, yeah, 10th century, 4th, 4th century BCE. Okay, Plato and Aristotle, they were like right back to back with one another. Uh, the earliest texts that we have come from the 10th century of the modern era, era what we would call A.D., So there's a gap of like 1,300 years. And the number of texts that we have for Plato or Aristotle are like less than 10 and less than 50. And yet no one ever goes, you know, I'm not sure I want to buy into what Mr. Aristotle said because after all, how do we know what he really said? Which, you know, those, you know the, the highfalutin people that talk about Plato and Aristotle, they just go, well, yeah, you know, he wrote about the unities of the arts and philosophy and all of this. Well, those were the texts that we had to work from. Homer, who was writing epic poetry about the Greek gods and it's incredibly good stuff, right? He wrote in the ninth century before Christ... Um, we actually have some, some fragments, little tiny fragments of uh, Homeric poetry that predate uh, even the Lord Jesus. But there was still a gap of 500 years, and we only have 600 to 700 little fragments of Homer. And then F.F. F. Bruce, a noted uh, 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 New Testament scholar, and I am, I'm I'm kind of gaming, gaming the system here a little bit because I'm switching to talking only about the New Testament, but F.F. F. Bruce tells us that, okay, Uh, the era that the New Testament tells us about is the first century. The earliest fragments of the New Testament that we have come from the year 125 A.D. It's a gap of only 25 years. Ask anybody who studies history. And they would be comfortable with that gap of 500 years. They'd be cautious with the gap of 1,300 years. And if they said there was a gap of only 25 years from the events to when people wrote them down, as a historian, they'd say, we have a high degree of certainty that what was being reported uh, uh, was coming from eyewitnesses. And we have fragments of more than 24,000. In fact, if in the, in the second century, if somehow through crazy Harry Potter magic, we lost all, if we lost all of our scraps of the, of the Bible, we could recreate the Bible just from the early church fathers quoting the Bible by the second century. Okay, so the New Testament is incredibly reliable. And I'd go as far as to say this that God watches over His Word to protect it. God watches over His Word to protect it. When the communists took over China in the late 1940s and 1950s, Chairman Mao said, I will eradicate Christianity and the Christian's book from my country. And now, one of the greatest revivals in church history is taking place in China with hundreds of millions of Christian believers. And they came about because Christian believers back then in the forties and fifties had memorized God's Bible, God's Bible memorized it and written it down and preserved it. The Bible is not only unique in its unity, it's unique in its preservation. And then, uh, that's good. Let's go to the next slide, please. Um, Uh, It's unique in the fact that God chooses to continue to speak through the Bible. Do you know God spoke the Bible into existence, but he didn't just do this and said, well, I'm glad that's over with. God is speaking through the Bible right now to us today. Um, For example, just in our personal lives, do you want to hear the Holy Spirit in prophetic words or words of knowledge then we need to use the Bible to train our ear to hear how God speaks to us today. Do you want to hear God's voice for your life and for important decisions? We use the Bible to understand the ways of God and that impacts our life and our important decisions. Do we want to hear God's voice when no one else can speak to our need and that need could be grief or loneliness or great joy or uncertainty Do we want to hear God speak to our need? It's the scriptures that speak to us today. And not only for us personally, but what about the people that we know? I mean, do you have friends who like have their doubts? Invite them with their doubts to investigate the book with you. And God will speak to both of you. I've seen it happen time and time again. Do you have friends that, who think the Bible is, quote, full of contradictions? Say, hey, you know what? Let's look at it together. Let's go find the contradictions and let's examine them. And somehow in the middle of that, God will speak to both you and to your friend. Do you have friends who think, well, you can prove anything you want through the Bible? You say, hey, that's great. Let's open it up together. Let's look at it and let's see how we can prove anything we want. And in the midst of even that, God will speak to both you and and your friend, the Bible is unique because God is still speaking through the book. It's unique in unity. It's unique in its preservation. It's unique in the fact that God is still speaking. Are we okay? I'm not being too professorial here, am I? Yeah, I'm good. Okay, thanks. At least I got I got two people that nodded. I'm good. All right. So for the two of you that are listening, let's go on. For the rest of you, I'll try to finish up on time. Um, let's see where we're at. Here. Oh my goodness, I got all kind of time. I got another hour. This is good. Okay. All right, Let's talk about uh, what the Bible is not. Uh, the Bible is not a law book, although there are laws. OK? Back to the credentials. I believe in the Ten Commandments, right? But the Bible, even, and sadly, unfortunately, in many translations, especially the Old Testament, a wonderful chapter out of Psalms is set, chapter 119, which talks about the law of the Lord, right? Also, Psalm 19 says the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. More to be desired are the words of God than gold, even than fine gold, right? It's The law of God is sweeter than the honey and the honeycomb. But it's not a law book, although there are laws in it. Um, meaning no disrespect to any counselors at law that might possibly be in the room, if we embrace the scripture as only a law book, it becomes a tool for which we argue pro or con for a given position. And anybody that, you don't even have to be a lawyer to know, that the law can say this And then somebody can say, well, I interpreted what it says this way. I interpreted what it says this way. And they go ahead and they parse down to the point that one lawyer famously said, well, that all depends on what the meaning of is, is. Right? Lawyers will parse it down to what is the meaning of the verb to be. And what happens is that if we appropriate the scripture as a first and foremost, as a law book, we become religious lawyers. Now, I, we need good counsel. We need people to help us understand what are the responsibilities of the law. But what God does not need is religious lawyers. Is that, is that true? Okay. Besides that, life isn't a courtroom. Life is so much more like a living room. Do you understand that? When you raised your kids... Did you raise them with somebody with a black robe here and somebody over here arguing pro and somebody over here arguing con? And did you raise your children to uh, uh, logically analyze everything? Or when you were trying to get your children to walk, were you in the living room and daddy was on the couch holding baby's ribs and mommy was four steps away on the floor saying, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. You understand life is a living room not a courtroom. And the Bible is a living book for us. We find what it means to learn how to walk spiritually. We find how to deal with our emotions. Do you know that it's really cute when an 18-month-old throws a tantrum? It's far less cute when an 18-year-old throws a tantrum. Right? Okay. There are laws in the Bible. They are not mere suggestions. I am steadfast, 100%, Against murder. It's not a suggestion. Right? So there are laws, but the Bible is not a law book. In fact, did you know that more than half of the Bible is narrative story? We learn about Adam and Eve. Do we learn about them through tenant number one of the law, tenant number two of the law, tenant number three of the law? No, we hear a story of a place that God created that was perfect and how He shaped man from the dust of the ground and how God bent over and kissed the breath of life and the first man became a living being. And the story goes on from there. And in fact, the story goes on this much through Genesis. The story goes on through Exodus. And the story, the the narrative even continues in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, although there's some laws thrown in. And then this story continues through Joshua and Judges and 1st and 2nd Samuel, it's all one story. It's it's a narrative. It's It's as long as all seven Harry Potter books. It's a massive narrative, and it's a unified narrative. Okay? So it's not a law book. The second thing that the scripture is not is it's not an owner's manual. You know why it's not an owner's manual? Because we're not machines. What will speak to Sarah's heart might not speak to Sandy's heart. What speaks to Lori's heart may not speak to Disco's heart, although they're, they're a pretty good couple. They're pretty close to go, right? When I first got a Bible, and I'm going to tell you that story when we finish up here in an hour or so. When I first got a Bible, someone said, you know, you wouldn't buy a new car without reading the owner's manual. And I go, well, you don't know my family, <laughs> Right? But they'd say, you know, the Bible is God's owner's manual. He made you, and here's the owner's manual for the proper operation. You know, now that's okay, except that the metaphor is so deeply flawed because we're not machines. The first man became a living soul who breathes the breath of God. And the same breath that God breathed into Adam, we are breathing that breath today. We're breathing the breath of God. That's why we're alive. Okay? So we're not machines. It's not an owner's manual. And then the Bible is not a weapon, except it also is a weapon. The problem is, is how we wield and use the weapon. Do the, you understand that one of the most argumentative people in the scriptures also said this, we do not struggle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. The problem is, is how often have we wielded the Bible as a weapon against people? The Bible even describes itself as a weapon. It says it's the sword of the spirit, able to discern the thoughts and intents of men, to separate soul from spirit, bone from marrow. The problem is, and this is, this is an image that many, many people have used, the problem is, is that if you wield a sword improperly against the wrong opponent, you work against the work of God. And so when Jesus is taken captive that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, Impulsive Peter pulls out his sword and he strikes out at one person there. And what does he cut off? He cuts off the ear of a servant. Do you know that the Bible, when wielded as a weapon against people, actually prevents them from hearing the word of God? The Bible, when wielded as a weapon against powers and principalities, lofty thoughts which raise themselves up against the notion of God. And I'm talking about thoughts in my mind when, when the Bible begins to inform my thinking, it is a powerful weapon against the work of the enemy. Does that make sense? I mean, it's not a weapon against other people. And can I, I just, Andrew talked about, you know, like all these countries apologizing to one another at the global, the vineyard global thing. We need to apologize for the fact that we have used the scripture as a weapon to manipulate other people to do what we think they should do i mean that's not a we like oh let's just all agree about it think about your own life <laughs> think about the children you've raised or the neighbors that you've talked to and then think about how i've i've used the bible as a weapon to manipulate okay it's a powerful weapon when trained against the right enemy but we don't struggle against flesh and blood okay so that's what the bible is not but what is the bible OK, the Bible is the Holy Spirit's home address. OK, so we're the vineyard. We're those crazy people who say, you know, when I saw you, I had a vision of dark clouds and lightning and, you know, and I saw birds flying around. But the birds were weird because they also had on boots that were like army boots. And, you know, people are starting to talk about all of the, you know, you've seen ministry time here and you're going, what in the heck is going on here? Right. OK, let me just say this. If you want to hear from the Holy Spirit, there is one place that you can reliably go every time and he's always home. And it's between Genesis and Revelation. And in fact, it is dangerous to engage in prophetic ministry unless we are soaked in the narrative of the scripture. Pastor Adam's done this for us before. The narrative of the scripture tells us that when we encounter giants, what do we do? We slay them with a rock and a sling. The narrative tells us not to be afraid of things like that. The narrative can inform us. But apart from steeping ourselves in the Bible, then all of the more charismatic aspects of ministry becomes anything goes. You know, even Christian critics of Pentecostal and charismatic practices have a point when they go, well, what, you know? Anything goes? Roll around on the floor, bark like a dog, whatever. By the way, I'm not saying God isn't in either of those. But my point is, my point is the Bible is the Holy Spirit's home address and he's always home. He's always home, okay? The Bible is a valuable tool for spiritual formation, second point. It's a valuable tool for spiritual formation. Yeah, okay, I expect the pastor to say that. I expect the guy that studies the Bible to say that. I expect a world-renowned international author to say that, right? Let me ask you this, how did Jesus become the man that he was? How did he become a man of peace, a man of patience, a man of grace, a man of mercy, and a man of truth? Do you know that the Bible that Jesus read is what we call the Old Testament? and that the very Old Testament that many people want to trash these days and say, oh, that's a really ancient book filled with violence, <coughs> excuse me, filled with violence, and the Old Testament especially, it's I don't want to buy the Old Testament. I just want Jesus. Have you heard this argument recently? The only thing I want is a spirituality that has to do with Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus. Do you know what Bible Jesus read? Do you know what bible or what formed Jesus as a person? It was the old testament. When Jesus said, when Jesus said, the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. He reached that conclusion by reading from Genesis to Malachi. That's how he reached that conclusion. It informed his life. When Jesus said, you Pharisees will practice tithing all the way down to the the herbs in your garden, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, such as justice and mercy. Do you understand that it was because he had read Hosea and he told and challenged the religious lawyers of his day. He said, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Where did Jesus get that phrase? He got it from Hosea. When Jesus told the parables that he told, the incredible stories from short, the kingdom of God is like a woman who took leaven and hid it in three measures of flour or of dough. And then the leaven worked its way through the whole dough. That's the entire parable. To longer parables like the prodigal son, right? Where did he learn to to put, life instruction into stories about people? And the answer is because the Old Testament is filled with story. The Bible formed Jesus. The Bible informed his spirituality. To reject the Old Testament as dated and flawed is to ignore the effect of God's written word on our Lord. We should embrace the stories and the precepts of the Old Testament. You see, Jesus' teaching did not set aside the Old Testament. Jesus' teaching was informed by the Old Testament. Jesus' teaching did not say that the Old Testament no longer applies. Jesus' teaching firmly established the Old Testament. Jesus said this, look, heaven and earth will pass away, but I tell you that not one dot on an I or one cross on a T from God's word, and he meant the Old Testament, will never pass away and the challenge is then how do I have the kind of heart to read the Old Testament that will produce in me Jesus instead of producing in me a Pharisee does that make sense but Jesus embraced the Old Testament he embraced the Old Testament um, what's the third point I've forgotten it there we go it's the truest story ever told. Okay, I'll get to that. But first I want to tell a story. You can just leave it right there. It's fine. Truest story ever told. I want to tell you about two friends of mine. They're dear friends. Um, uh, I'm not going to mention their names, but their initials are Eric and Amanda Hurchin. Okay? As, as husband and wife, they said, you know, we need to spend more time in the scriptures. And they said, what should we do? And they said, you know, let's just do this. And they weren't, they, they didn't read this. It wasn't in a program or a book. They said, let's just read... Proverbs chapter three tonight. And so before they went to bed, they read Proverbs chapter three and it's, you know, so many verses long. And then after they read it out loud, side by side, husband and wife in bed, they just went, huh, I wonder what that means. And then, you know, like Eric said, well, you know, that verse right there, that kind of points out to me this. And and then she said, well, when I read that verse, I, you know, I thought about that. And they had such a good conversation with each other that the next night they said, let's read Proverbs 3 again. And they read it out loud for each other and then talked about it before they turned the lights out. They did that every night for a month. And, you know, by the time they were two weeks into it, they said, hey, let's do this for a month, right? And then when they got to the end of the month, they said, you know what? I'll bet you that God's word has even more in it than we know So rather than changing scriptures, let's do Proverbs 3 again. And they went nearly a year of almost daily. We're not trying to make rules or laws for people, right? They went nearly a year of reading just Proverbs 3, finding, oh, the depth of the wisdom and the riches of the glory of God revealed in his inscripted word. And listen, Eric was here several years ago, and he taught on Proverbs 3. And I've never heard so deep of a teaching. Okay? It's a tool for spiritual formation. How about Jesus? We talked about Jesus in the Old Testament. When Jesus was tempted by the adversary, he leaned on the book. When Jesus started his ministry, he leaned on the book. When he explained what he was up to to other people, he leaned on the book. When he hung on the cross, he leaned on the book. And after his resurrection, when he tried to explain what had happened to the disciples, he leaned on the book. It's an amazing thing. Okay? Now, truest story ever told. And then I'll give you some homework, and then we're done. We're doing okay. We're doing okay. Truest story ever told. Okay? Here's the deal. Anybody got the Bible on your personal portable device? Got your Bible on your iPad, your Nook, your Kindle, your watch. I don't know what do we got the Bible on these days. Um, We have Bibles that are published in every conceivable manner, from old-fashioned black leather to um, you know floppy paperbacks. Uh, We've got Bibles. I have a friend who attended Campbellsville University, and he now lives in like either Seattle or Oregon, and he actually has the Bible for like Xbox. And so the Bible is on Xbox, right? You know, or whatever. There's the Wii and there's the PlayStation, what, PS10? What is the, what's what's the newest one? I don't know. Thank you, PS4. I, don't, I can't keep up, right? Okay, you know, there, we have the Bible in all these things. But you know what? Here's what's happening. And that is that, you know, by the way, I went a long way around to try to throw you off the scent of Psalm 29, right? Because what I didn't want us to do is to tap or scroll, or, or Google, or bring up a little snippet of the Bible. You see, we have, we have ubiquitous access to the Bible and search engines that are the blink of an eye. I am so old that if you wanted to find a Bible verse way back in that land called the 1970s, you had to go to another print book that was about this thick, open the print book, find in alphabetical order the word you wanted where it listed every single time that word was used. And then excuse me and then you had to read until you found the verse that you were thinking of and then you'd go to another book called the Bible and open it up and look at it and now you just tap in you know Bible adultery boom there you go Now I'm grateful for that But you understand that what has happened is is that as the Bible has become more and more available to us we have become more and more removed from the story of the scripture As the Bible has become more and more available to us, we've become more and more removed from the grand story of the Scripture. You know, when a guy repeats himself twice, it's because he thinks it's important. <laughs> As the Bible becomes more available to us, we've become more and more removed from the grand story of the Scripture. But it's the greatest story ever told. It's the truest story Ever told? We've got the word of God at our fingertips. It's searchable in an instant. But our view of God's interaction with all of humanity is being lost. Do you understand that when a boy named Joseph was daddy's favorite and it got everybody else so angry, his brothers, that they betrayed him and threw him into a pit. They wanted to kill him. They decided we'll only sell him into slavery. And he goes uh, hundreds of miles away. Do you understand that that life story teaches us that God deals with whole lifetimes. And you know why that's important? Because if you are in a pit and you are about to be sold into slavery to people where you don't speak their language and you're going to be unjustly accused of sexual assault and thrown in the slammer and forgotten about for years, you can tell yourself, God deals with whole lifetimes. My story isn't over. What are you facing today? What pit have you been in? And for how long have you been in the pit? Your story isn't over. The truest story ever told tells us that God hasn't given up on anyone. And from the time that Adam and Eve turned their back on God and themselves wanted to be gods, that God has a relentless pursuit for all of us and that he never, he never gives up. And we can go ahead and read. uh, My daughter loves to read books. She reads the end before she reads the beginning because she wants to know how it's going to turn out, right? Well, we can do that too. We can read the back of the book in Revelation and find out that a loving God has overcome every obstacle so that the presence of God will be with us forever. It's the truest and the best story ever told. All right. Last thing. Last thing. Pastor Adam does this, so I figured I want to be like Pastor Adam. I've got some homework for you, so if you haven't been taking notes yet, well, number one, why haven't you? But number two, take out whatever portable device you have, open up your notes, and let me give you some homework. Can I give you some homework? Why, yes, I'm going to. Whether you'll do it or not, I don't know. Okay? All right? Homework number one. Examine your life and discover whether you have made room for the Bible in your life. We make room for whatever we want. On Tuesday nights, every Tuesday, I watch The Flash on the CW, on the CW network. I watch it because I like it. I think The Flash is the best superhero ever was. And don't be bothering me on Tuesday nights when The Flash is on. I know I could DVR it, but I wanna see it right away. Okay? We make room in our lives for what we value. The first bit of homework is just do a little assessment and say, have I made room in my life for the truest story? Okay, now after you've done that assessment, let me just suggest to you that we should spend time with the Bible pretty much every day. Now, I'll just be honest with you. There are days that I don't read the Bible but there are not many days where I don't read the Bible, okay? I don't figure God's mad at me. I don't think God's got a time limit. I don't set the timer at 10 minutes, and then when 10 minutes of reading the Bible, you know, go ding, 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 I go, well, I'm glad that's over with, right? But first we examine our life to see, have we made room for this gracious gift for followers of Jesus? And then the second thing is, make room for this gracious gift, right? Somebody way smarter than me said that man does not live by donuts alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So I make room for donuts every single day. Right? (laughs) Actually, if I'm really accurate, I make room for hardened coffee every single day. Right? I definitely make room for that. And I almost always make room for donuts. But man does not live by bread alone. He lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And remember one of the points way back was that the Bible is unique in that it is still speaking. Examine your life, see if there's room, make room. And then the last point, this is the last bit of your homework, number three. I'm only giving you three. Adam usually gives you 10 or 20, so you're getting off easy this week. Okay, the third point is begin to soak your imagination in the biblical story begin to soak your imagination in the biblical story. Do you know that all of our imaginations are soaked in something? I mean, and you heard me on the CW on Tuesday, maybe my imagination is soaked in Barry Allen and the Flash, right? The truth is, is that the way we interpret the world will come out of what we have soaked our imagination in. I know of a guy who lives in another state who is so soaked in financial planning that when I ask him what will your future look like, he can only answer on one plane, and that is how he is saving for retirement, how many more years he needs to work, and what kind of financial uh, situation he's going to leave for his children. Now, am I against financial planning retirement or leaving an inheritance for your children. I'm not. But when I ask him, what will your life look like 10 years from now? He only has the capacity to answer along one plane because he has soaked his imagination in financial planning. There's nothing wrong with financial planning, right? The truth is, is that we can soak our imagination in an awful lot. We can soak our imagination in regret. We can soak our imagination In sensuality, we can soak our imagination in donuts. A Bible-soaked imagination will open up limitless possibilities for the rest of your life. Yeah, I'm going to say that again. A Bible-soaked imagination will open up limitless possibilities for the rest of your life. To the people who do financial planning, you'll begin to find out that God can command the ravens to supply you and that when the ravens quit supplying you, that a widow who is broke and has practically nothing can supply you, right? If you have a Bible-soaked imagination and you find yourself unjustly accused... Beaten with 39 lashes, and in a prison in a strange town called Philippi. That if you worship God, God will come in the middle of the night to listen to your worship and he'll set you free because he liked the song that you sang. A Bible soaked imagination will give you limitless possibilities. Examine your life, see if you've made room for the scriptures, make room for the scriptures, soak your imagination. In the biblical story, it's God's gracious gift to all of us. Um, I think we have a ministry team, right? Is there people that have been assigned for that? Been at least two, so we're we're doing good. I think it's really nice. Did you notice that a young husband just let his wife go first? That was really a very kind act. It was very thoughtful. Okay, so this is uh, Sammy, Joe, and uh, what's your name again? Ben. I, I paused for a minute because it was, is it, is, it is it Will or is it Ben? Is it Will or is it Ben? Is it Will or is it Ben? It's Ben. Okay. All right. And what we've done, if you're kind of new to the vineyard, is we've trained people in just the ability to just listen well, just to begin to soak their lives in the biblical imagination and to pray for you. And I can tell you that the last time I received ministry, changed my life and is still changing my life. So my application were those three bits of homework. But these guys are available as we dismiss to pray with you for anything that you need. So let's see. How does Adam do this? He says, would you stand up? Would you put your hand on your heart? Right? I think this is actually a plot by Adam to get you to head to the door faster so that the 11 o'clock people can come in. Because now you're already on your feet. Right? Okay. Your hand on your heart is probably because we're going to pledge allegiance to the flag. No, wait. No, we don't do that. All right. Let's pray. Jesus, I pledge allegiance to you. Lord, I don't even pledge allegiance to your Bible, but I pledge allegiance to you, my loving redeemer and sustainer, and I thank you for the book you've given me. Lord, where I'm not thirsty, I ask that you'd make me more thirsty. Where I am confused, I ask that your word would give entrance and bring light. And Lord, I ask that you would soak me deeply, in your grand story, of which I'm a part. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you once again for stopping by the Vineyard Campbellsville podcast. If you want to keep up with what's happening at the Vineyard, in addition to our website, you can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, Until next time, though, we say peace to you and yours. Thank you.